Let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And someone asked, well, how are we in chapter 12? And uh, we have almost half of chapter 11 left. Well, the simple answer is we're going to get back to chapter 11. And uh, for our purposes, uh, we have considered to a great extent the importance of faith from the preceding uh, verses. Of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer has been hammering home that point, and uh, we will get back to that, and uh, let's turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In chapters 1 to 11 of the epistle, the writer to the Hebrews has been, for the most part, expounding the scriptures, challenging and encouraging his readers to persevere in their faith despite persecution. Here in chapter 12, he's largely intent on exhorting, on encouraging them to press on and not be discouraged. He likens the Christian life to running a race. One of the more common metaphors we find in the New Testament for Christian living. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 26, in expressing his resolved to live the Christian life in a disciplined and focused manner, portrays himself as being in a race. He writes, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. He does very much the same thing in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, where he said to the Ephesian elders as he took his leave of them, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's approaching the end of his life and he's writing to young Timothy and again he uses the analogy, the metaphor of a race in which he has been involved. He says this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. And then finally in Philippians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, again expressing his resolve to be focused, to be disciplined in his Christian life. 
He says there, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The question is, why does the author of Hebrews liken the Christian life to a race? In what way is the Christian life like running a race? You see, by its very nature, a race calls for diligence and earnestness. A race demands excellence, it demands the exertion of our best effort, our best energies, and that the Christian life is like a race implies, certainly implies, that we cannot be passive, we cannot be laid back, we cannot be listless in our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. That the Christian life is a race suggests that there is absolutely no place for idleness nor sluggishness. In fact, earlier in chapter 6 and verse 12, the writer had expressed his desire that his readers would be not sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the Christian, or rather inherit the promises. It is very clear then that Christian living requires vim and vigor. It requires our best effort, it requires strength, it requires earnestness. It demands that we attend to the things of God and to the well-being of our souls with earnestness and enthusiasm. And why is that the case? Because, you see, among other things, the honor and glory of God is at stake. Issues of eternity are at stake. Our lives, the way we live the Christian life, impacts for good or bad others. Here that in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the writer would have his readers approach your Christian life similar to that of an athlete in a race. And what would he have them know concerning this race? In our text, we find at least three things he tells them concerning the Christian race or what we could describe as the race of faith. First of all, he calls their attention to the incentive for running the race, the incentive or motivation for running the race. In this regard, he directs their attention to the testimony of those who have already run the race. Notice verse 1a, here's what he says, therefore, and it is said every time we see a therefore in scripture, we are to find out what it is there for. The therefore takes us back to chapter 11, where the writer gave this extensive catalog of Israel's heroes, heroes of the faith, who did exploits for God because of their faith. And the writer is saying then, consequent upon what I've told you in chapter 11, following all that I've said in chapter 11, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the words of verse 1 have been the subject of much speculation. The question is often asked, who are the witnesses that surround us as we run the race? And one of the more common explanations is that these witnesses would be departed saints, those saints of old, including those heroes of the faith mentioned in chapter 11, or those witnesses could possibly be angels looking on as we run this race. 
problem with this interpretation is that the idea that the departed saints are involved in this world, as it were, looking at what we are doing, looking at our progress in the Christian life, does not find support in Scripture. And if they do, we have no way of knowing that for sure. Why? Because the Bible simply does not tell us that. We must never read into Scripture ideas, however appealing they might be. I had someone, good friend, who reminded me of that this past week. A simple solution to these opening words of verse 1 is to recognize that the Greek root word for witnesses in verse 1, besides referring to someone who sees something firsthand, can also refer to the testimony, the evidence, the witness they bear concerning what they have seen or experienced. So that the point of verse 1 would be this, by the feats and accomplishments of Israel's heroes of the faith, Those men and women who are mentioned in chapter 11, they are giving evidence, bearing witness to the power of faith in God. You'll notice, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, how that in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 11, it is said of Abel that through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So he's still bearing witness. And we believe that this is a sense in which we are to understand what the writer is saying here when he tells us that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The question then would be, what would be some of those testimonies or evidences that are being borne by Israel's heroes of the faith? And if you go back to chapter 11, it's not hard. For example, the fact that such men as Enoch, And Noah survived the ungodliness of their age and the subsequent judgment of God on account of their faith in God. The fact that even when he had nothing to go on, even when to human thinking, it seemed illogical, it seemed senseless. Abraham, all he had to go on was the word of God. God told him to go to a place where he should, after receive foreign inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. In a humanly impossible situation, such as bearing a child in old age, Sarah, by faith, received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had believed that Sarah bears testimony There's witness to the power of faith in God. The fact that faced with life-threatening scenarios, many of these peoples of old, according to chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, to use the words of the writer, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lands, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and also the fact that These people, many of them, even the face of threat to their lives, did not back down. They persisted in their faith in God. Why? Because of the prospect of resurrection. All such feats of faith, the writer is saying, serve as evidences, as witnesses or testimonies of the enabling, sustaining power of God, of faith in God. So that the point of verse 1 here in our text is this, that the extensive record that's found here in Hebrews chapter 11 
of what the Old Testament believers were able to accomplish through faith serves as an eloquent, impressive witness regarding the power of believing and trusting God regardless of circumstances, regardless of how difficult and challenging one's circumstances might be. The author is saying this, that the accomplishment of these heroes of the faith serves then they bear abundant testimony as to what faith in God can do. He's saying then that they bear testimony to the fact that God is still very much active in the lives of his people even today, that what they did through faith we can do. We have a great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of evidences, he's saying to us. And he's saying that because we're encircled on every hand by innumerable attestations of the power of faith, let's be encouraged then to tackle the race that is set before us. He is here urging his discouraged readers, his disheartened readers, to pull up their socks, as it were, and to approach their Christian lives with energy and with enthusiasm. Read preceding chapters. You discover how he says, listen, you're weak, you're listless. And he's going to say to them later on in this chapter, lift up the feeble hands and the feet that are lame. Get them straight. Get going. He's saying, listen, let's be encouraged. You can do it. Others have done it. And such is message for you and me today as Christians is that, yes, we can live for God. We can, by the power of God, be all that God would have us to be. Second, as regards the Christian life as a race, not only does the writer of Hebrews call attention to the incentive for running the race, but notice he calls attention to the imperative for running the race, the imperative for running the race. Here we are talking about the fact that this race, this Christian race, this race of faith in which we are engaged as Christians, is not a matter of option, but rather a matter of obligation. We are obliged to run this race. It's not a matter of choice that's left to us. We are actually commanded to run this race. We are obliged to run this race. How do we know that? Look at the end of verse 1. Notice at the end of verse 1 that this race, it is described how? As the race that is set before us. It is the race that is set before us. In other words, it is the race that is divinely appointed for us. The fact is, once we become saved, once we become Christians, while, while we become followers of Christ, we are automatically and inevitably summoned to the race of faith. We have no choice. It is set before us. And it's not left to us. It's not left to us to determine whether or not we should run the race. That the race is set before us also means that the impositions, that is to say, the hurdles, the obstacles, the handicaps we encounter in this race is part of the divinely appointed race that is set before us. The respective circumstances or respective Circumstances, temptations, limitations, trials, all constitute this race to which we are summoned as Christians. 
this race, we're obliged to run. No, we're not given an option to cop out of this race because this race is not the most comfortable race. We are not given the option because this race is a grueling race. It's a tough race. It has too many hurdles, too many temptations, too many trials. The fact is, there's no viable alternative to the race in which we are presently engaged. All the hurdles, all the obstacles we encounter come with the race that is set before us. If we look at it this way, some of us this morning are in our various circumstances, difficult circumstances, some more than others, some face greater temptations, some face greater challenges, some face greater suffering. Why? Because it is all part and parcel. These are all part and parcel of the race that is set before us. In other words, God is the handicapper. As Bible commentator James Hastings says of the Christian in relation to this race, here's what he says, quote, The Christian, he may not leap the ropes and try a shortcut. He may not demand some softer course, some more elastic turf. He may not ask that the sand be lifted and a hard-beaten surface prepared for him. He may not require that the ascents be leveled and the rough places made smooth. He must take the course as he finds it. In other words, he must not wait till things are made easier for him. He must not refuse to run because the course is not all he could wish. He must recognize that the difficulties of his position in life are the race set before him. People say, you know, if only I had a better job, if only I had a better employer, if only I better, had a better husband, if only I had a better wife. Listen. The circumstances, the situations into which we are thrown are precisely those situations that are part of the hurdles, quote-unquote hurdles, obstacles, challenges we face in the race that is set before us. The bottom line then is this, that the race of faith with all the trials, with all the difficulties that attend it is imperative for the believer. Our task then is to run the race. We are under obligation to run the race that is set before us. Well, not only does the writer lay before his readers the incentive for running the race and the imperative for running the race, but notice thirdly, we want to look this morning at the instructions for running the race. The instructions for running the race. If you notice in verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews presents his readers with a three-point instruction for running the race. A three-point instruction for running the race. First of all, notice in running the race, they, and by extension, you and I, are to discard all encumbrances. We are to discard all encumbrances. That is to say, we are to rid ourselves of any and everything that would hinder our progress in this race. Anything that would compromise our best effort at living the life of faith, we are to put away, notice what he says, let us, let us lay aside every weight. Now in the context of our passage, what is a weight? Because he's going to talk about sin. So evidently, a weight and a sin are, are not the, they're not the, the same thing, right? 
He speaks, first of all, of weight. He says, let us lay aside every weight. A weight, we would say, is anything that's unnecessary. It's a non-essential. Anything that does not helpfully and positively contribute to our living for the Lord and be at our best for this race to which God has called us. We are to lay aside, he says, every weight. Think, just for argument's sake, this morning after church, we said, you know, we're going to have a good time before we go home. We're going to have a little race around this block. And I were to be in the race in my shoes like this, my jacket, my everything, my tie, how ridiculous <laughs> it would be. Why? Because people do not run a race with entanglements. Now, in the Greek Olympic Games, during the days of the apostles, athletes, as they competed in races, they took very seriously this call to lay aside weight, every kind of weight. Some of these athletes actually, in carrying out this principle, they actually ran in the nude, naked, literally naked. That was Greek society for you, right? They would run the, in fact, in, and this is just an aside, we don't want to spend time here, but the, you know the word gymnasium. Um, is, is derived from a Greek word, gymnazo, which actually means to practice naked. So in the gymnasium of that day, they, the, the way they would prepare for these races, they would actually practice naked. And one of the reasons why they would go naked, among the reasons we're told, would be in honor of Zeus showing the well-sculpted body. But also, they would use that to intimidate other runners. And then, of course, they wanted to go as light as possible. Through hard physical training, dieting, sculpting the body, as it were, these ancient athletes would rid themselves of excess fat, of excess body weight, all in an attempt to excel the endeavor to cast off weights of every kind. And that's why one of the things for which the Greeks were known, of course, as you know, was well-sculpted body. This idea of going to the gym and looking sculpted, well-sculpted, is actually coming from the Greeks. Now, here in our text, the writer is applying all of this, and he says, listen, he's exhorting his readers to lay aside every weight, to throw off Everything that would pose a hindrance in running the race that is set before me. And the question is, what are some of the things that constitute a weight in the Christian life? What are some of the things that we could place under the category of weights in the Christian life? Entanglements, impediments. Bear in mind that weights are not necessarily sinful. I think I said that earlier. If I didn't say it, then I'm saying it now. Weights in and of themselves are those things, some of those things which in and of themselves are good, but insofar as enabling us to be at our best for Christ, living the Christian life, they're really no good. They serve more as a hindrance. And the question is, what would be some of these things in the Christian life? Well, worldly pleasures. 
can be one such weight, you know, pleasure. Nothing is wrong with pleasure. There are some people who wrongly, erroneously teach that a Christian is not supposed to have a good time. In fact, the word of God suggests the very opposite because we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that God has given to us what? Richly all things to enjoy. God doesn't call us to a life of hovering and really just being a drab. No, 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 no. It is good to enjoy oneself. Nothing is wrong with that. But here's the point. It can become a weight. It can become a weight because if we're not very careful, let's say the whole matter of eating, persons can get into all kinds of pleasure, all kinds of eating binges, drinking binges, and then before you know it, they're not at their best spiritually. Worldly pleasures can be one such weight that hinders the Christian in the race of faith. When the attractions, the allurements of the world grab our attention, preoccupying our hearts and minds, then we are carrying a real weight. The Puritan Benjamin Keach will express his truth when he wrote, he says this, it is impossible for a man to run the race with the world upon his back. And how soberingly true was this evident in the scriptures in the case of Demas? Paul writes of him in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, this man used to travel around with the apostle Paul and he was very faithful, part, part of Paul's inner circle, being of assistance to Paul. And here's what Paul says of him in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. He says this, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica worldliness. There are friendships associations which can function as a weight. One of the things I've said over the years, I've said it in different contexts, that not every Christian is necessarily a good friend to have when it comes to your intention to grow spiritually. Many people made the mistake, for example, many young people, many parents made the mistake that because they are sending their children off to Christian school, that everything is going to be fine. But here's the point. Sometimes some of the worst kinds of hindrances are found there in Christian schools. Here's the point. If a friend or an associate cannot put you in the place, motivate you to be at your best for God, then that friendship is not worth it. It is not worth it. There are friendships and associations which rather than helping us serve more to hinder and retard us. There are habits, habits, recreational activities, which though good in themselves can become a weight, a hindrance to our being the best Christians we could possibly be. The point is our participation in these activities must be modified or if necessary, they must be discarded if ever we are going to be at our best for God. And you know, I know, what are those things that are functioning as weight in your life? For some people, it is some gadget. For some people, it is social media. They spend a great deal of time on Twitter, on Facebook, on Gab, you name it. And here's the point, anything that, though good in and of itself, begins to compromise, begins to cut in on our commitment to Christ, becomes a weight which must be dropped. Why? Because it's getting us nowhere. The 
The bottom line is anything, anyone, any idea, any thought, any attitude that would hinder spiritual progress is a weight that must be discarded if at all we are going to run the race and run it effectively. In running the race, notice that's set before us. In running this race that is set before us, not only must we lay aside weights, that is things that do, which though sinless in themselves are not helpful, but we must also, notice, verse 1c, we must lay aside sin. We must lay aside sin. Here's what he says. And sin which clings so closely to us. The literal reading of the Greek is the easily ensnaring sin. And from this, some commentators suggest that what is in view here is a particular sin by which one is easily overcome, a particular sin with which one continually struggles. We talk about a besetting sin. If we take this line of interpretation that what is in view here is a besetting sin, then based on the context of the book of Hebrews, we could say that that besetting sin for these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, go back to chapter 3, chapter 4, their besetting sin was clearly unbelief. By the way, we struggle with unbelief many times, don't we? I think, however, it is best to regard the text as referring to sin of any kind. Sin of any kind must be gotten rid of. But the fact is, any kind of sin, listen, any kind of sin, however small, however seemingly innocent, is harmful to our spiritual well-being. Think of this. Sin, however small, breaks our fellowship with God. You know that? Yes. Sin breaks our communion with God. Sin interrupts our fellowship with God. We cannot be in communion with God while holding on to sin. The psalmist says in Psalm 66 verse 18, If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sin robs us of our peace. Sin robs us of our assurance. And there's nothing that more readily hampers the Christian in his or her walk with, with the Lord, and more specifically, in his or her race that is divinely appointed than a tormenting, guilty conscience. How many Christians are tormented by a guilty past? They cannot go forward. Why? Because the sins of their past keep what? Haunting them. Sin does that. Nothing like guilt, says Benjamin Keach, tends to make a Christian grow weary and faint in his mind. My friends, as a debilitating force, sin ensnares us, sin entangles us, thereby impeding our progress and thus landing us in spiritual defeat. That's why we must take serious note of sin in our lives. However small, we must not compromise with sin. All this to say that you and I must deal radically and surgically with sin of, of any kind if ever we are to make spiritual headway in the race that is set before. Sin of every kind must be laid aside, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, if we would so run as to obtain the prize. Paul says, 
I bring my body under, I bring it into subjection, lest after I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. How many Christian leaders have been disqualified, have come to disgrace because of compromise with sin? So the first instruction for running the race is this, discard all encumbrances. Encumbrances in the form of weight, encumbrances in the form of sin. We can be encouraged this morning, beloved. Why? Because God has given ample evidences in his word of people who through faith have surmounted their challenges, have overcome. And the message this morning is this. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Let us therefore run this race that is set before us, casting off everything that would impede our progress. May the Lord help us to this end, for his name's sake. Amen. We'll finish this this afternoon.